0: This is the official SASTA podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, and if you haven't already, it would be great to see you on Instagram. I'm there at hstebbings with two Bs, 1996. And there, you can suggest both questions and guests for future episodes. But to our guest today, and I'm thrilled to welcome back a longtime friend, slightly under the radar, but phenomenal player in SAS, who just continues to smash it. His name, Ed Sim, founder and general partner at Bold Start Ventures, one of the leading players in early stage SAS investing. Their MO is to be the first Czech VC for enterprise And they've backed the likes of GoToMeeting, acquired by Citrix, LivePerson, which IPO'd on NASDAQ, Divide, which was acquired by Google, Customer, Sneak, and BigID, just to name a few. Ed's also the co-founder of M-State, a growth lab for enterprise blockchain in partnership with IBM. And if that wasn't enough, Ed is also the writer and brilliant brain behind BeyondVC, a must-read blog for me in the world of SaaS. But before we welcome Ed back to the hot seat today, thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, Printavo. Screen printers of all kinds rely on Printavo to manage every aspect of their business, from artwork approval to scheduling to payments and analytics. The platform has created, check this out, over 1.8 million invoices for thousands of print shops on both desktop and mobile. And you can learn more at Printavo.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, just like Printavo did, visit WePay.com forward slash Sasta. That really is a must. They've got this incredible cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's WePay.com forward slash Sasta. And also, as a founder or operator, your most important job is people operations, hiring execs, developing managers, retaining top talent, and building a high-performing culture. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one people management solution for growing companies. That's why the likes of Asana, Reddit, and Cruise build a strong company culture with Lattice. And with Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 reviews, share ongoing feedback, facilitate one-on-one, set up goal tracking, and run employee engagement surveys. And Lattice is the only solution that combines performance management and employee engagement so operators can make sure top performers are happy. And check this out, Lattice is giving away three months of Lattice free to Sasta listeners. Simply head over to lattice.com forward slash Sasta to receive that fantastic offer. That's L-A-T-T-I-C-E dot com forward slash Sasta. That really is a must. We love what they're building at Lattice. But that's quite enough for me. So without further ado, I'm very, very proud to welcome back longtime friend and phenomenal player in SAS, Edson. Founder and general partner at Bold Start Ventures Good, that's perfect Okay, I think we're warmed up Ed, I'm so excited to have you back on the show for a very special round two. So thank you so much for joining me today, Ed. Thank you so much, Harry. I feel like I'm in
1: very special company. I looked at our date, and I think it was about three years ago when we did our first
0: episode together. It was indeed three years ago, and you're dating me with that, which is quite a tricky thing to do. But I would love to start, Ed. As you said, three years ago, we had round one. For those that didn't hear round one, how did you make your way into the wonderful world of SaaS?
1: To be honest with you, I ended up being a venture capitalist because I heard about it in college. Believe it or not, one of my friend's brothers was a VC out of Boston back in the early 90s. And it talked about why VC was such a wonderful career move. And of course, me not knowing anything, tried to reach out to several VC firms and no one really responded to me. So I ended up going to Wall Street and working at JP Morgan, helping build quantitative trading models. And during that time, I learned Visual Basic and automated my job, which was basically glorified data entry. And you know, Mosaic Browser came out at the time. I was going to go to business school and I saw an ad in the newspaper for a venture capital technology associate in New York in 1996 and believe it or not I faxed my resume in, got a call back and that was the beginning of my venture capital career 22 years ago
0: I absolutely love it you faxed your resume in <laughs> uh, am, am I dating myself here <laughs> you are slightly dating yourself I've never used a fax machine so that, that does say something but I, wow. I do want to st- yeah I know I'm sorry for that but and I do want to start say quickly moving away from my youth with the statement that you've said to me before, which really kind of highlighted to me kind of why I was so excited to have you on the show, because you said that founders shouldn't sell their product to their first few customers. So I'd love to start with this and your thinking around that. And maybe could you unpack that a little for me?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It almost sounds counterintuitive, but just to give a little framework, what we do and specialize in is we're the first check in for technical enterprise founders. So everyone we fund, typically engineers, with a certain view of the market, building a new product in a new area, and they also kind of want to come in and just sell their product to folks. And frankly, we have an advisory board of IT executives from banks and insurance companies and media companies, and no one really wants to be sold to. You want to go in and understand what their problems are. And what we like to say is, let's flip the paradigm on his head, not to sell anything to anyone, but let's figure out what their problems are and how do you partner with them? How do you become a trusted partner? Because at the end of the day, no matter whether you're a five-person startup or you're a 100-person company, your product itself is not going to solve every single problem for them. So you need to build that trusted relationship. And so from our perspective, we have a playbook with our founders where we talk about an enterprise design partnership. And we have a number of Fortune 500 companies who are willing to engage in partnering with these founders at the very earliest stages You know, with a pointed view of, let's say, building something in the serverless space or building a next-gen security for open source play. And I think if you turn it upside down and not sell anything, I think that removes a lot of the pressure and then allows you to have real conversations with these folks.
0: Can I ask, just in terms of having the opportunity to kind of build that, as you said, trusted relationship, how do you think founders today, when they are naught to 10 people and very little trash, how can they have the opportunity to begin that relationship building in the sea of enterprise startups trying to reach the CIOs of the behemoths of today?
1: Frankly, I think what you really need is a trusted filter. And I won't toot my own horn, but there are a lot of great VCs out there that actually work with a lot of these Fortune 500s. And my perspective is when you're choosing your investment partner or even choosing any investors or board members, make sure that they have a relationship or understanding of how to get into some of these enterprises. And I think from a diligence perspective, these founders should call around and check in on their VCs and figure out, are they really actively helping out in the process? Do they have these relationships? Because at the end of the day, it's all about trust. And you know, the biggest thing that we've seen, I mean, we're based in New York and everyone asks us, why do you do enterprise investing out of New York? Isn't it all in the Valley? And I like to always say, I always go back to the point of, you know, why did Willie Sutton rob banks? He Rob Banks because that's where the money is. So we have 55 Fortune 500 companies in New York, and every kind of company is a technology company. Jamie Dimon from Chase says, we're a technology company that happens to be a bank, right? So if you think about that paradigm and that lens, everyone is trying to hire tons and tons of great engineers. And the frank reality is that the best engineers are going out to start their own companies or work at startups. So these banks and insurance companies and large Fortune 500s, if they don't have a mechanism to filter and partner with the ecosystem, they're going to die. And, you know, we've seen it more and more over the last five years versus 20 years ago.
0: Can I ask, post your check going in there, as you said, often at the very earliest of stages, how do you think about that talent shortage in terms of engineers? And how do you look to kind of navigate that challenge with the startups themselves? So from our perspective, it's the talent gap more on the Fortune 500 side,
1: because if you're a really amazing engineer, you're going to actually want to start your own company or go to a startup, right? You want to be somewhere exciting. Being somewhere fast-growing. I think second thing is, is that our job, I mean, we're the first check-in. So a lot of the times we invest, it's two, three years ahead of where the market really is, which can be scary, but exciting at the same time. And so if you're building something kind of on the leading edge, but not bleeding edge, then I think it's easier to recruit engineers, whether it's making bets in serverless, where we have four serverless-related companies we started investing in three years ago, or intelligent automation. You know, you hear about RPA, that's all the rage now, but we started investing in that three years ago as well, or even GDPR, right? And kind of that data, we invested in Big ID, seeded it three years ago, and now it's off to the races, right place, right time. But the reality of it is, we had to be there three years before.
0: So we've kind of instantly taken the lead here into the world of enterprise. But often the question for founders is whether to start in SMB and go to enterprise or start at enterprise and go to SMB. Most often it's the first. How do you think about this decision from the founder's mindset? And what advice would you maybe give to someone contemplating it, Ed? I would give a different perspective. Think about the
1: problem you are solving who you're solving it for, and what are the replacements that you're building for. I'll give you a great example. So one of our enterprise application companies is called Customer with a K. And the founder, Brad Birnbaum and Jeremy Surreal had previously started a company called Assistly, which was going after the SMB space for customer service. They sold it to Salesforce and it became Desk.com. They had an idea to go after Zendesk. And I know you've had some of the investors from Zendesk uh, in the past. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But they had an idea to go after Zendesk. And what they saw in the customer support space was that every mechanism from which an individual customer could connect you with was siloed, right? Whether you sent an email or sent it a, a chat or a message, it was all kind of siloed together. And there wasn't one universal, universal interface for one customer. And what they did was said, OK, you know what? Let's start with the problem, which is if, Harry, you're the customer, I want to know everything about you right there, which means we have, an, have to have an integrated data platform around that. And so you know, these guys thought they are going to sell to SMBs. But the reality of it is, is that problem that they're solving had? integrated data silo with tons of data building automations around was not an SMB problem. That was a medium to large enterprise problem. And so, you know, you got to start with the product. So in their minds, they wanted to go after SMB and kind of do self-service. But the reality of it, of it was, was that the SMBs didn't really care about kind of that one place for all the information. It was a larger play. So, you know, that goes back to your question of SMB or enterprise. It has to start with the product and the problem. And that product has to match the problem. And you need to figure out what type of company that is, And then you can figure out what the model is after that. You know, how do I build self-service if it's SMB?
0: Or how do I build kind of a
1: pre-sales function if it's,
0: you know, large enterprise? I absolutely love that kind of product leading the decision-making there. I am interested, though, say that we went for the enterprise. And the most common problem that founders come to me with is enterprise sales cycles. They say, Harry, I'm at the very earliest stages. I have short runway. The sales cycles are long. How do I do this sales rep-wise when they're such long ROIs? Should they also chase SMBs in the meantime to make Up with smaller revenue wins. What's your thoughts and experiences towards nailing the first enterprise customers in the first year or so without that kind of terribly long ROI and kind of sales cycle? Well, my first advice would be that when you actually
1: start your business and you're raising capital, make sure that there's at least 18 to 24 months of runway. And once again, I'm putting the lens on it of two technical founders coming into my office with pre-product. I would imagine that six months it would take them to get to an alpha stage, and you start having conversations conversations with enterprises, you know, around that time when you kind of show some type of user interface to get them excited. And then there'll be another six months of conversation. So that's 12 months. And then as you deploy in there 12 months from kind of funding, you've got another three, four months to go through pilot, maybe have a few under pilot, maybe be able to convert one to, to kind of a, a full paying customer. So I think you have to start with the milestones and then work backwards. I think that's the most important thing. And I assume it's going to take a minimum of 18 months, if not 24 months. So when you do that seed round, if you're doing a pre-seed round, then there are certain goals you may need where you need seed round. But try to think about 24 months
0: in a package from the day you start to the day you get some of those customers. Would you advise against founders getting small revenue wins in the form of maybe SMB or smaller customers while they're also chasing the whale enterprise customers?
1: Yeah. So once again, for me, it's kind of a different kind of business case. So I'll give you an example. So a company that's in London and Israel is in your backyard called Sneak S-N-Y-K. And I think it goes back to the product and who you're targeting, right? So Sneak is a different story altogether. It actually has a system where you can actually scan all of your open source Git repositories for security vulnerabilities, and then we offer the updates for free right there. Well, guess what? Ideally, you know, you want to get into the enterprise eventually, but that's a bottom-up developer-led play because it's led by the product. The product dictates that developers need to use this, and then 10 developers start using it and you start moving up the stack. And I have to tell you that they're doing about 350 thousand 400 thousand downloads a month now, three years later, but in the very beginning, it's started out slow, you would get a single developer on, they'd expand to a team, but we weren't going after the enterprise because the product didn't dictate on the enterprise. Eventually, we got pulled into the enterprise as the larger pharma companies started using it. And so once again, I go back to not the sales model doesn't dictate who you go after, it's your product and what problem you're solving and who you're solving it for should dictate how you go after whether it's SMBs or large enterprises. Because I, I, we couldn't have actually gone after large enterprises in the very beginning with that product just because it, it wasn't ready for it.
0: You mentioned the word pilot there, it's often a common point of contention that I see with founders. And it's to what extent should they offer free pilots versus paid pilots? How long should the pilots be? What can they do to make sure there's kind of conversion at the end? How do you think about this and kind of ensuring efficiency with the pilot model?
1: That is the question. And I wish there was a formula to say like, if A, then B, then C, right? And, and But there really isn't. <laughs> I've not been doing this a long time. And the question that you're asking is, do I do a free OC or do do I do a POC, (laughs) right? And then some people may say, always get skin in the game, charge, you know, 25K at least or 50K at least because it's a million dollar deal. And others will say, you know, don't do anything. I mean, from my perspective, I think you've got to navigate and kind of understand the goal of any kind of relationship is to figure out how quickly you can get them to paying. And from our perspective, if you look in the playbook that we have, we go back to the idea that a founder's first three or four customers are probably either going to come from their relationships because when they started the business, they had a pointed view of the world and they probably already have some relationships from a product they sold prior, right? So it's going to come from their relationships. It's going to come from their investor relationships or their advisor relationships. So the first three or four are relationship driven. So that's, even if you land those, that's not product market fit. So what do you want to accomplish from that? Paying is nice, but the most important thing I think that the smart investors will look at downstream in the A and B round is, are they referenceable customers? And is this a daily part of their life? Is this a painkiller? Does it solve a massive problem? Or are they using it every single day or multiple times a day? Or is it kind of a vitamin and they check in every two weeks and it's just a, it's just kind of um, a friend doing a friend a favor? So I think you really need to dig in a layer deeper. It's not about how much you're getting paid. It's Is this solving a massive, massive pain point for them and a problem? Do they freaking love it? Is it a daily part of their life? And then from there, you can build upon and start thinking about, do I charge them? How much do I charge them? That kind of process.
0: It's so good you said that about referenceable customers. The one that I often get asked is, Harry, is it about quality or quantity of logos in the early days. Do you have a kind of a strong opinion on this and how founders should pursue that? Man, it's
1: absolute quality. And quality meaning not just the name of the customer itself that might be representative of who your audience might be moving forward, but also quality meaning that the person using it is a decision maker and solving a super, super big pain for them. And the one other thing I forgot to mention is if you do, whether you do the free OC or POC, the most important thing is when you go down that path is setting aside a statement of work to show that if we prove this out then you know you will pay for this or these are the three deliverables i need to make let's agree on this and if this happens then we flip the switch because what you need to do is set a time frame that is meaningful and that makes sense because you don't want kind of to drop an installation into a large bank let's say and then have a never-ending nine-month poc that's not going to help anyone it's, just, it's not going to solve problems so you know if someone won't give you an agreement about what the statement of work is and what are the three things we need to prove out and actually quantify then you should walk away and find another pilot you know very, very important to say no to the wrong first few customers as it is to say yes to the right first few customers.
0: Can I ask, in terms of kind of that internal champion, who do find there's most opportunity and effectiveness from your experiences in selling into? And how do you think about kind of building multiple relationships in case that internal champion leaves?
1: Harry, that's an absolutely great question because part of selling to a large enterprise is understanding the politics and the decision-making process. And so, you know, I'll give you a great example. I'll go back to Sneak, which is a company in London and growing super fast. They actually target developers. And so their outreach in the beginning was evangelizing to developers. So it's a complete bottom-up strategy. Strategy. The goal two or three years down the line was to get to the enterprise. Yeah, and then some people say, hey, developers don't have budgets, they don't have this, they don't have that. So the reality of it is, is that we had to actually appeal to the developers, but ultimately we knew that the person buying it was going to be the security person. It was going to be the security person and the VP of IT, so two of them. So as we started going after the developers, evangelizing at all the conferences, then you go top down and kind of market to some of the security folks. And then boom, when you go into a large enterprise and get brought in, it's both of them involved. And in this case, we wanted the security budget. Because Because, you know, that's a very big budget. There were other folks that weren't solving the problem as well as we were, and they could move faster and it was a bigger budget from our perspective. So I think you need to understand and kind of map and start thinking that through in the very beginning as you
0: start your marketing and start your outreach. I absolutely love that kind of bottoms up until there's enough critical mass and then you go top down. Can I ask, what do you think is that inflection point for the willingness for top down to really work with enough traction? The willingness for top down. So you you mean in the bottom up to top down model? Yes. so like, 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 how much do you need bottoms up to convince the CIOs, the internal buyers to purchase your product? Is it 30% traction within the organization? Is it 50% traction? Is it these three internal functions? What do they need to see within the internal workings to get comfortable buying it?
1: I would say that there's no hard and fast rule for that, to be honest with you. And typically, I'm thinking about some of our first few enterprise customers. I had for example. It was maybe three people using it, but they're running it on top of all their their Git repos, and we just made it so easy for folks to use that they loved it, and then reached back out to us and said, hey, can we just work on an enterprise license and have this for our 800 developers and thousands of repos? So I don't think there's an actual answer, because I think in every industry, it's different, because this was a kind of a novel solution, you know, leveraging GitHub and Bitbucket and other solutions. I think in areas that are more competitive, like, let's say, messaging like Slack, and that's a different kind of sale, you're going to need a lot more penetration and department. To, to kind of do it. Or maybe even like an Elasticsearch, right? An Elasticsearch, I know some of the folks over there, before they sold their first bank, they had eight different departments using Elasticsearch in various different ways. And then the head of sales had to go in there and navigate and try to organize all eight of those departments together just to do one enterprise wide license. And that, that took, I think, a very long process.
0: Can I ask, in terms of getting those customers in the early days, we spoke about pilots earlier as one mechanism. Another mechanism that is often used is discounting. How do you think about discounting? I had a guest on the show the other day that said discounting stays table stakes. Would you agree with him? And what have your experience has been in kind of startups really employing the discounting strategy effectively or not effectively? Now, would you say this is for the first
1: few customers or just in perpetuity, I guess, is the question? Let's start with the first
0: few and then move to in perpetuity.
1: So I never start with, I mean, I think discounting is the last thing, period, because I think what you need to do when you're selling your first few customers is I like to say you market the vision, you sell the product. And so you need to get... Get that enterprise person to know that you and what you're building and your team is gonna build something for the long term three years from now. This is a roadmap that we've laid out. Today we happen to have this product, but this is where we're gonna move forward. And by the way, we would love your input into the direction of which we're going. We're not gonna customize them anything for you, but if it's for a market and you happen to want it, we will work with you on it. So I think you need to sell that vision, show that you're the right people for it. And once they kind of buy into that, what you really want to get from them is engineering resources, you know, make sure that they'll invest the time. Because what most people People don't understand is that it's not about asking the 25 to 50k. If there's like data integration challenges or whatnot, and if they give you two resources to actually move data to your platform, etc. Cetera, etc., cetera, that's an investment. And so you want to make sure that they're gonna invest some of their time into this. And the third part that I would say is at the end of the day, when it comes down to the money situation, I'm less concerned about the money situation, in the first few customers. You know, as I said, it's all about getting the referenceable customers in the first place. So discounting is usually the last part of it. And if we do do a discount, it's kind of like okay, in year one, we'll give you. Thirty percent discount or a forty percent discount, and then we'll kind of reassess it after year one. So it's not fatal, regardless of how you do it. The expectation is always that because they're a partner of yours, both of you are willing to make an investment—investment investment on their side from time, resources, maybe some capital the investment from your side—is maybe giving a discount, but that will get reset. You know, if you deliver on everything you need to do.
0: In terms of like the discounting themselves, often one sees discounting with like multi-year contracts. How do you think about the importance of like prepaid multi-year contracts? And if if they're not prepaid, is it not just shifting that customer success function to finance?
1: Yeah, I think the multi-year contract is definitely something we're seeing across the board in our portfolio, whether it's you know two-year kind of contracts or three-year contracts. And then a lot of the folks will offer discount, let's say, a 10% if you prepay all of it annually or even more if you prepay three years. So, as you know, Harry, cash is king for startups. To the extent that you can actually use your customers to finance some of that earlier, I think is an absolutely uh, massive opportunity and I think you'd be nuts not to even offer some of those discounting in the future for cash flow upfront.
0: Also, another kind of smaller but very important element that I wanted to discuss was in terms of tipping over those first enterprise customers, how important is the investor base that you've assembled in terms of providing that validation? I think it's absolutely massive.
1: And most importantly, once again, is, you know, it's not just us, but there are other VC firms too. But we have a very active kind of IT executive advisory board. We've got a very active IT network that we work very closely with. And even during the diligence process, we will engage with these folks to figure out, hey, if this is something that's quite interesting, you know, can you give some feedback during the diligence process? And sometimes these folks will become pilot customers during the diligence process very early on, knowing how early these customers are. So I think part of our job and the investor based job is to find those right people who are willing to engage with startups earlier in the life cycle versus waiting for a more mature company. And I think that that is a huge difference that can cut significant time down from you discovering
0: of that first few customers. Can I- ask, Ed, we've spoken all about kind of scaling from zero to one today. Uh, the ultimate graduation to the one stage is the raising of the next round. I'm interested, how have we seen the benchmarks required to raise that next round change? What do you think maybe they are today, having seen multiple of these happen very successfully? And what are your thoughts on kind of the benchmarks to raise that round? I've actually written a post in
1: the past about various benchmarks for a Series A round. And I'll give you some stats. In Fund 3 that we have right now, the 20 portfolio companies that we have, we've gotten, I think, eight Series series A rounds done, and the median amount raised is about 10 to $12 million in that series A round. And if we looked at kind of the stats across the board, I think five of the eight were preemptive rounds that were done where there is less traction, maybe a few interesting pilot customers, maybe one or two converted. So I think what I'm trying to say is that if you have an amazing team, if you have two or three huge referenceable customers that you can easily extrapolate to being much, much bigger opportunities down the line, I think that sometimes metrics get thrown at the door, for opportunity and vision. And then you have the other companies that are all metric-driven, right? And frankly, I I think once you start doing that Series A round, that's not more of a Vision A round, but more of a metric-driven round, you can get spun up in circles kind of with people just waiting and waiting and waiting and looking at metrics, right? So I would say that there's two kinds of A rounds done. And fortunately, we've had opportunities and founders that have been more of the former versus the the latter.
0: In terms of like the valuations that you mentioned the 8 to 10 million rounds. That's kind of looking at, say, maybe at a 30 pre- with maybe not such a significant customer base or revenue matrix. how do you think about the valuation inflection point between seed and A? And is that maybe more prominent than ever?
1: I think it's absolutely more prominent than ever. And if you look at kind of the amount of capital out there, I think it's a function of two things, the amount of capital out there. And then also the idea that these founders can accomplish more with less and then also seed firms like ourselves, right? It's not just that we give folks their first few million bucks in, but if a founder comes to us and says, hey, I'm sitting here doing three pilots right now, I I need to hire two more engineers to deliver on these pilots. I need a pre-sales person to deliver on the pilot. You know, should I go and raise money? Seed firms with a little bit more capital may say, look, uh, this is what we do. is like, hey, why don't you just take another million dollars more from us or another million and a half dollars from us and some other insiders and let's price it at slightly higher price than, than than the seed, but obviously less than the A. And we'll give you another you know, nine to 12 months of runway and we can always go back and hit the well later. And I think that's a, a dynamic. So it goes both ways. It's, it's from the bottom on the seed side, but it's also from the A-round
0: firms having much more capital kind of uh, managed under their watch. You mentioned the portfolio companies within Fund 3 there. I do want to finish before the quick fire. on a statement that you said, which is why seeding SaaS companies is dead and infrastructure is the way to go. Unpack this for me, and is this not slightly shooting yourself in the foot, Ed? It is in a way, but if you look at a lot of the SaaS companies
1: we seeded, they're more like in 2010, 2012, 2013, 14. And, you know, these are companies like Front or Superhuman. And so I feel like those areas, everyone and their mother was funding kind of SaaS applications kind of from 2010 to 2014. And as you can see, the results of that, there have been a lot of companies that have gone public. You know, the DocuSigns of the world even much older than that. And I think that the barrier to entry to create a SaaS application, kind of a front-end application, is pretty low. And I think what, if you look at where the world is going, because we have the enterprise IT lens, we are going through the biggest digital transformation in history where everyone's going from legacy data centers to the cloud. And I think we're just 10% of the way in there, number one. And I think number two is if you look at kind kind of the stats. You know, even if you like a Gartner stat, 75% of app purchases from the large enterprises is not going to be from buying kind of applications, going to be building their own. And that kind of makes sense because if you're trying to codify your DNA, your business process, you're going to build that yourself. Yeah, And then the second part is that uh, engineers and developers. I think there's like 22 million or 25 million active users in GitHub right now. So imagine kind of, and, and then I'll have everyone. So the growth of developers and engineering is going through the roof. So if you combine all those trends together investing in developer products, developer ecosystems, you know, security, cloud native infrastructure, and helping these large enterprises do things better, faster, cheaper. That is where the world is going versus packaged applications. I mean, there's only so many new CRM kind of applications or a satellite of a Salesforce plugin that you can fund these days. That's not going to give you the, the outsized returns. And so if you look at the infrastructure space, there's so much money being spent, so much dislocation that we think there's just tremendous legs there moving forward. And that's where we've probably- put 80% of Fund3 into over the last three, four years.
0: No, listen, I couldn't agree with you more. I think we've been trying to get a more efficient way of doing uh, video calls and a more efficient CRM for the past 20 years. But I would love to move into my favorite of any interview that Ed now being the quick fire round. So I say a short statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts. Are you ready to roll? Let's do it. So what would you most like to change in the world of SaaS today? That is a
1: really, really great question. I just you, think there's way, way too many SaaS applications out there that are niche oriented that aren't software. Problems, and I think that we need to, you know, have people think bigger. When I say success
0: in SaaS, who's the first person that comes to mind, and why?
1: Mark Benioff, because he invented kind of the whole SaaS framework with the, you know, no on-prem, or no enterprise software, and, and, and they're crushing it right
0: now. What do you know now that you maybe wish you'd known at the beginning of your time the, in VC?
1: I always like to say, you know, Harry, that I'm always learning, right? And so, you know, when I first started in VC, they always said it's about the people, and I'll even say today it's always about the people, and. That's that always changes. You know, you've got to really be perceptive and understanding. So I would just say that that's something that, that I'm always working
0: on. Do you agree with the commonly held notion that founders should sell up to a million in ARR? I don't think there's a steady benchmark,
1: to be honest with you, of selling up to a million or, or, or not, or 500k. But I do think that founders should be the ones responsible for the first three to five deals that they close so they can share that learnings with you know, the people they hire.
0: Final question, Ed. What does product market fit look like to you? Brand? Feld says it's 500k ARR, Jason Lemkin says it's 10 unaffiliated customers. What's product market fit to you? From my perspective, product market fit is when you
1: get your first three to four cold customers that no one uh, has a relationship with from kind of outbound marketing. That, to me, is the ultimate test. And you can't get those, usually, unless you have some referenceable customers from before, which are probably some friendly relationships. So it's a combination of that and kind of a part of the playbook, I guess.
0: Ed, you know, I always love chatting. I'm so excited for the future ahead with Boldstar. And I can't thank you enough for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Harry. This is quite
0: enjoyable. And
1: uh, congratulations, by the way, on your own fund. You've just been absolutely amazing watching you over the last three years, just learning and building your fund. I think that's super, super exciting. So I see great things ahead for you as well.
0: Now, I'm sure you all know how much passion and love I have for doing this show, but it really is relationships like mine with Ed that make me so grateful to be able to do it. Ed is an absolutely phenomenal player in the world of SAS, and I was so proud to feature him there. Such exciting times ahead for Bold Start. And if you'd like to see more from us behind the scenes, you can on Instagram at hdebbings1996 with two Bs. Likewise, you can find Ed on Twitter at edsim. That really is a must, and his blog is beyondvc.com. But before we leave you today, thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another. Another very cool player in SaaS, Printavo. Screen printers of all kinds rely on Printavo to manage every aspect of their business, from artwork approval to scheduling to payments and analytics. The platform has created, check this out, over 1.8 million invoices for thousands of print shops on both desktop and mobile. And you can learn more at Printavo.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, just like Printavo did, visit WePay.com forward slash Saster. That really is a must. They've got this incredible cheat sheet on how to get started with platforms Platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com forward slash sasta. And also, as a founder or operator, your most important job is people operations. Hiring execs, developing managers, retaining top talent, and building a high-performing culture. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one people management solution for growing companies. That's why the likes of Asana, Reddit, and Cruise build a strong company culture with Lattice. And with Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 reviews, share ongoing feedback, facilitate one-on-one, set up goal tracking, and Run employee engagement surveys. And Lattice is the only solution that combines performance management and employee engagement so operators can make sure top performers are happy. And check this out Lattice is giving away three months of Lattice free to Sasta listeners. Simply head over to Lattice.com forward slash Sasta to receive that fantastic offer. That's L-A-T-T-I-C-E.com forward slash Sasta. That really is a must. We love what they're building at Lattice. But that's it for today. And as always, we so appreciate all your support and cannot wait to bring you a wonderful episode next week.